Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 63, Unwavering Samadhi, Meditative Achievement and Its Impact on the World. We continue our discussion with Buddhist teacher and author B. Allen Wallace on the impact of the recently completed Shamatha Project. Dr. Wallace shares the astounding levels of concentration that were achieved during the three-month retreats he led and tells us more about the achievement of Shamatha. He also discusses the potential impact that a study of this magnitude could have on the scientific community, as well as the broader impact in fields as diverse as education and mental health. This is part two of a two-part series. Do you love this show? Support Falling Fruit and advertise your product or service here. For more details, visit fallingfruit.tv slash sponsorship. Because a lot of people were focusing on shamatha and retreat, and I remember in your book, The Attention Revolution, you mentioned that practicing intensively, like eight hours a day or so, it takes three to nine months. And you, you said probably even longer for Westerners because of uh, the context we're in, the modern context, to develop the attainment of shamatha, which seemed likened to like access concentration in the Theravada, where from that point you can kind of go into these deep states of jhana. And I was wondering if, if anyone was able to do that on your retreats and... If not, how long does it take? Well, uh, you're exactly right. In the Tibetan tradition, this, of course, is the one I'm most familiar with, uh, but the Tibetan tradition deeply rooted in the Indian Mahayana tradition, going back to Asanga and uh, Kamalashila and these other great Indian pundits and contemplatives. Uh, when we speak of achieving shamatha, this does specifically mean achieving access to the first jhana. Mm. That's exactly what it means. And in the Tibetan tradition, there's quite a broad consensus that Achieving access to the first jhana, this is really an indispensable samadhi prerequisite for being able to practice vipassana with full efficacy. That is, so that vipassana can really get the job done and sever the roots of mental affliction so that they never, ever, ever arise again. So it's a pretty strong statement. Mm-hmm. And here's another generic statement. It comes in uh, multiple traditions, and that is, well, what's an indicator? What is one indicator that you've achieved shamatha? Mm-hmm. Well, the actual process of, you know, the day you achieve shamatha, it's not, gonna, it's not something that you kind of think, I think it happened last month. When you actually achieve access to the first jhana, there's some very, very distinctive, radical, unpre- unprecedented transitions or transformations that take place in the body and mind. And you'll remember, it will be like on an afternoon or a morning of a certain day, and that will go in your calendar big, big time. And so I won't go into all that detail. That would be a whole Dharma talk to give that. I've, I've described it in detail in the Attention Revolution. Mm. And you can find it in many other sources as well. But one of the kind of the aftermaths of having achieved shamatha is that pretty much at will, that is, unless you're sick or something really unusual has happened, you can sit down, go into very deep samadhi at the drop of a hat uh, effortlessly, and you can maintain unwavering samadhi for a minimum of four hours. And this is samadhi such that your, your physical senses are completely, completely imploded drawn into purely mental awareness and the mind is extremely stable, extremely vivid, and you can remain in that state of blissful, luminous, non-conceptual samadhi effortlessly and for a minimum of four hours. That's the real thumbnail sketch of, well, what's it like to achieve shamatha Mm -hmm. or access to the first jhana? Mm -hmm. And I, frankly, I've not seen any real, when I've looked at the Pali Canon, the Buddha's own teachings, and then the most authoritative Theravada commentaries, I hadn't seen any real differences between what I just described and what is presented in the Theravada. Mm-hmm. And so this is raising the bar pretty high. I mean, a lot of people are using the word jhanas in a much more, how do you say, easy access way. Right, right. Uh, than what I've just described. 
But as far as I can tell, I mean, in, in the Vasudhimaga by Buddha Gosa, he says, if you achieve the actual state of the first jhana, you can remain for 24 hours in unwavering samadhi. 24 hours, he said, like a strong man who can stand upright for 24 hours without having to sit down or fall down. And so that would pretty much make sense. Access to the first jhana, four hours. Actual state of the first jhana, 24 hours. So the bar is very, very high here. If we look at the most authoritative commentaries and sources in the Theravada and the Mahayana tradition, and they seem to be in complete accord with each other. Mm. Now, in the classic Tibetan tradition, when they say, okay, how, let's cut to the chase, how long does it take? Uh, well, in Tibetan, you know, the great meditation masters would say, well, if you're really well prepared, it can take as little as three months, it may take nine months, oh, but who are they addressing? Their audience, the people who are reading this, are primarily monks and nuns, or already people who have devoted themselves to meditation and gotten very, very, you know, very solid uh, maybe years of monastic training, years of study, years of developing the whole monastic ethic mm-hmm. and living in a contemplative environment and then going off and trying to achieve shamatha. Well, I, I know of one yogi who achieved it in four, a Tibetan yogi achieved it in four months. But again, he'd been, he'd been a monk for years before he ventured into it. Mm. So this is a rather optimistic estimate that it can take as little as three months or even nine months. People coming from a lay life where they're meditating before the retreat, maybe half an hour, maybe an hour a day, this is very different than having been a monk for years and living in a contemplative environment and having mm. years of study and other types of meditation preceding it. Right. So, to answer your question, to the best of my knowledge based upon very, very, I think, very candid interviews, no, I don't believe anybody achieved shamatha in, in those three months or as little as 84 days. I never expected anybody. I mean, if they had, I would have been delighted but astonished. Right. But at the same time, people at the end of three months, some of them could maintain their attention without losing the object for three or four hours at a time. So essentially and they were getting close, huh? They were among, among the nine stages leading to shamatha. I'm persuaded. I think people spoke to me with great honesty. And I have, you know, I have some meditative background myself. So right. I have some sensitivity there. I'm persuaded that in those three months, that three months people had achieved fourth stage, even fifth stage out of nine. Mm, cool. So this is very, very significant progress. Because when you first start, when you're on stage one, you can't even sustain your attention more than a few seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time you get on stage four, you can maintain your attention for an hour and a half, two hours without ever losing the object. Mm. And people were doing that. In both retreats, we had a fair number of people who, um, I'm sure, I think their, their introspective ability to know how they were doing were, were very clear. And so they could maintain clear attention, sustained attention, and as you pointed out, enormously important, after sitting in meditation for two or three hours or meditating for 10 hours over the day, at the end of the day, they're not stressed out. They're mm. not tight. They're not exhausted. And people were sleeping very well. And then some people were uh, in the retreat were sleeping only two hours, three hours a night. And But I saw them and I was a little bit concerned when people are sleeping that little. Are they pushing too hard? That's always a big question for me as a teacher. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure people don't do that because they can really harm themselves. But the people who are sleeping only two, three, four hours a night, I mean, there were just a couple of aberrations where people had a bit of insomnia once in a while. But apart from that, no, these people were cruising and they were happy, they were light. They were friendly, they were engaged, and so the practice is going very smoothly. These are all good signs. When there's mm. kind of a lightness, a cheerfulness, a calm, at the same time combined with the intensity. And that's what I saw in many occasions in both retreats. That was very encouraging. Nice. And, and so out, out, of the, out of those 70 people we have right now, I, I lost count, but I think it's about a dozen people who are continuing in full-time practice. All about, what is it, maybe 10? I don't remember the numbers exactly, but eight or ten are in Colorado, living in isolated retreat, another two, three, four people in Mexico, 
continuing practicing minimum of seven hours, eight, nine, ten hours a day. And so people, this is again a shift of priorities. People got so inspired by what they could accomplish and experience in three months that quite a number of them are now continuing, or others, I know another couple will continue going into a one-year retreat later this year. They just needed to wrap up some of loose ends before doing so. But they got so inspired thinking, gosh, so much is really possible. So why should I stop at three months having achieved stage four or five? Why not continue until I achieve it? And then, of course, if you've achieved shamatha, now you've got this enormously supple, stable, joyous, clear mind. Why not then proceed into you know, the big leagues? And that is now go full full throttle into Vipassana mm-hmm. and really bring about some irreversible transformation in the mind. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the larger picture for these people, for many of them, they were deeply inspired. Well, shamatha, Vipassana, that's great. How about Mahamudra and Dzogchen? And so people were getting the big picture and thinking these practices really work. And some of them now, I think, want to be really lifelong yogis and saying, I don't want want to just achieve a shamatha. I want to achieve shamatha and then gain very deep insight into Vipassana and then proceed right on the path in in Dzogchen, for example, the great perfection. Nice. That's fantastic. Yeah, it really was. Enormously gratifying. Mm. When we apply ourselves, as the the great teachers in the classic texts have taught us, uh, boy, they really know what they're talking about. This is not just a whole bunch of texts. These are the 100 generations of yogis mm. sharing their experience with you. Mm-hmm. And I really felt that. And of course, it comes down not only to the text, but the great number of oral transmissions of oral explanations I received from wonderful yogis. I told the students in both those retreats, I'm kind of like the nozzle on the end of the hose here. What I'm offering you is immensely rich, but don't think it comes from Alan Wallace. I'm just passing on, you know, I clearly have practiced a lot, but the depth of, of the teaching that I was able to offer, that all comes from these great teachers of the past, including my own teachers. Mm. So, kind of looking forward a little bit um, in terms of when some of this data is analyzed and things are coming out in different journals and papers, um, how do you think overall this this whole project which you've helped orchestrate will end up impacting the scientific community, for instance? I guess that's, yeah, we can start there. How, how do you think that will impact the scientific community and then, and then kind of uh, culture at large? Because whatever, you know, whatever hits the... Uh, the journals ends up trickling down into popular understanding, it seems like. That's very true. You know, it, it get, it really, top-notch research gets published in journals like Science or Nature, and then it goes from there into New York Times or into more popular scientific journals, and then it you know, goes into newspapers and popular journals, so there's a big trickle-down effect if you're doing really first-rate science. And this was first-rate science. I mean, Cliff Saren and the whole team he put together were just wonderful to work with, impeccable scientists. So what is the likely impact or potential impact on the scientific community? Well, there's this topic called neuroplasticity. I'm sure you've heard of it. Sharon Bakley wrote a wonderful book on this topic, uh, Train Your Mind, Change Your Brain. And uh, it's this rapidly growing field of, of cognitive neuroscience, but also psychology. Just looking into the plasticity of the mind and brain, the kinds of effects, transformations one could bring about through training. And especially one of the major areas here is training through meditation, which is all about bringing about transformation and liberation of the mind. Mm -hmm. And so simple questions that we raised in this Shamata project were, is it possible to train attention at all? Or are some people just naturally scatterbrained, some people more focused, just kind of like your height. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. You've got genes and there you are. So is attention fixed or does it gradually just deteriorate over life? Or is it something that could be trained and trained in a durable fashion through meditation? When we started this project, there were no scientific answers to that question. Not wow. Nothing really clear and robust. And I think as a result of this study, it's going to be pretty darn clear. Wow, if people practice for three months, 
when you really, you know, this is all you're doing, now it becomes extremely clear. And now there have been, over the last year or so, there have been a couple of studies of people just meditating a half an hour a day and saying, oh, this, this too can impact the attention. So mm-hmm. the whole field of attention studies, the impact of rigorous training, uh, the malleability of attention, I think this will have a big impact on the scientific community. We also asked if you train your attention and it does get enhanced in terms of stability, vividness, is this good for your overall mental health and well-being? Well, there are no really clear answers to that. I think we're going to get some pretty clear answers from this study. It's a good thing for you. You don't become a zombie or kind of fixated or obsessive by developing your attention, even focusing on your breath for 12 hours a day. It doesn't mean you become kind of a, you know, <laughs> a tunnel vision weirdo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, it's very good for you. It, make, it makes the mind supple and lively and light, buoyant, even joyous. And creativity comes up a lot. I think that's something that it wasn't a primary focus of this study, but I think it's very clear to the meditators and myself that if you're meditating shamatha a lot, it really helps for making, drawing connections, opening up creativity, ingenuity, big impact there. So, and then, of course, it wasn't just shamatha. It was the four, the four immeasurables. And so can empathy can be cultivated. If you meditate a lot, does it enhance your, what scientists call the pro-social skills? Does it make you a nicer person? <laughs> you treat other people better. Uh, does your level of ethics, does that increase? And I think this was pretty clear. Uh, can, through meditation, can it elevate your overall sense of well-being? I think that's pretty clear. But these are fascinating issues from a scientific perspective without reference to any religious or metaphysical belief system. These are pretty hot topics. And so does meditation, it, can it be useful for enhancing mental health? Relevance for positive psychology, that is not trying to just get to normal, which is a good idea, but going from normal to exceptional states of mental health. Can meditation be helpful there? Mm. I think our study will make a major contribution in that area. And so just to, to, to one area of trickle down, and then you can, you can pursue it as you wish. But I think this has enormous ramifications, in especially two fields, education and mental health. Mm. And that is, if one can, if it has a wandering mind, either attention hyperactivity disorder, where your mind is just scattered all over the place, agitated, unfocused, you really can't learn much. On the other hand, if you have attention deficit disorder, kind of the mind is withdrawn, dull, lax, then you can't learn much. And here we are, you know, from age of five through whatever, high school, college, doctoral, graduate work. In order to get an education, you've got to be able to focus your attention mm-hmm. and do so without getting totally stressed out. And so could this have an impact on the education system? I'm, I mean, even the secular education system. This is not trying to make people, you know, become Buddhist or believe in reincarnation or nirvana. It's just, would you like to develop your intention skills? Wouldn't it be a good idea to get children from kindergarten on, give them really simple, fun techniques for learning how to focus their attention. And as the, their studies become more challenging, give them more challenging attention skills, skill training, so that you know, they keep on rising to the challenge all the way through college. Mm-hmm. I don't see why that shouldn't be part of education altogether, that as people need to use their attention for all aspects of education, and athletics, and music, and art, why not help them to train their attention? Right. <laughs> you know, right. so there are major ramifications here for education, and then for mental health, tra- treating treating problems like depression, anxiety, insomnia, and so forth, low self-esteem. Um, the shamatha, especially some of these techniques like observing the mind, settling the mind in its natural state, but also the four brahma viharas, developing love and kindness for ourselves, developing empathy, compassion for ourselves and others. These, I think, can have enormous bearing, a great offering to the whole mental health care profession. And so I think this could be a real wake-up call. Not that there hasn't been other work. There certainly has been. I think it will be a very significant contribution to treating people with mental problems 
that these meditations may be useful on, on time in conjunction with therapy, mm. but also in this whole burgeoning field of positive psychology, wanting to develop exceptional states of mental health and well-being. And so, can the meditation be helpful? I think the Shamatha Project will be very inspiring here, and hopefully it will catalyze or inspire other scientific teams in other traditions, Buddhist, non-Buddhist, Christian, Hindu, whatever, to also for them to organize longer retreats mm-hmm. uh, to see, you know, what's the impact when people practice very intensively for a sustained period? Mm-hmm. Uh, let alone, and we should have many more studies of people practicing for a half an hour a day, an hour a day. These are very useful because it's much more viable for most people in society. And the type of research that Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin have done to study very, very advanced yogis, even without knowing how they got there. Mm-hmm. You know, bringing yogis over from, from Bhutan and so forth. He's done marvelous studies there. We don't know you know, how they got there because they've been practicing some of them 60,000 hours. Mm-hmm. But that kind of research should continue. Research on people just practicing 20 minutes a day should continue. But we've opened up a field here of doing very, very rigorous scientific study of people doing basically nothing other than meditate for a sustained period. And I think only in that way will we have full longitudinal studies so we will be able to monitor the gradual sequence, the evolution, the transformation of the mind from week to week, month to month, and I think we should have, it would be marvelous within the next several years to start a one-year scientific study, a three-year scientific study. Or people who are lifelong yogis, then do a 10-year study. Mm-hmm. What's it like when people take this full-time as their profession? Uh, what's the impact on their bodies, their brains, their mental health? I think this is opening up a, a just an absolutely thrilling area where cognitive neuroscientists, psychologists, contemplatives, philosophers can all get together and begin to understand in a very rigorous and objective way the depths and the potentials of the human mind and how these can be tapped through meditation. Mm. And the Santa Barbara Institute, which you helped start or which you started, that's the primary purpose, mission of that organization, as I understand it. Very very true, yeah. We have an educational branch, we have a a research branch, but to try to facilitate this in the most non-dogmatic way, that is not trying to validate Buddhism or you know, verify one's own cherished metaphysical beliefs, but rather go into it with total open-mindedness, being willing to be critical and skeptical of materialistic assumptions, just as one can be skeptical of Buddhist assumptions, Mm. and then put everything to the test of experience. And that is really the central theme of the Santa Barbara Institute in terms of research, trying to understand the nature and potentials of consciousness, but also to be researching practical methods for bringing about greater sense of, of genuine happiness or mental well-being that rises from inner transformation and not simply by living in a comfortable situation, having a lot of pleasant stimuli come in. Mm-hmm. Which many of us do have. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> and then uh, in terms of the short term, do you, do you plan on doing any more of these kind of uh, longer term? You mentioned doing like a year or, or even more. Is that something that the Santa Barbara Institute is interested in doing in the future, like actually leading some more of these shamatha retreats? Definitely, yes. In fact, in the whole scientific team and I, we worked for four years together, as I said. And for the first couple of years of that, we were thinking, we were really planning on a one-year retreat. The scientists, you know, start salivating. They're saying, man, that would be cool to monitor people over a whole year of practicing eight, ten hours a day. Uh, but then when we got down to brass tacks, it would have been so expensive for the participants. That we, you know, we couldn't find any facilities less than $60 a day for individual accommodation, private rooms, and three meals a day. And when you have $60 a day for a year, you're looking at about 20 grand. Uh, yeah. quite, a, quite a lot of money to ask you know, meditators to come up with. So that was expensive. The scientific study itself would have been, it would have been over $2 million. So we, just, we saw a couple of years ago, you know, that's trying to bite off too much too early. Mm-hmm. So let's do what looks more like a pilot study. Do some three-month retreats 
and let the second group be the control group for the first. In other words, follow the highest standards of scientific protocol, do a really good study, see whether that's beneficial. And if it is, then this provides everybody, the scientific community, meditators, everybody, with the uh, inspiration, well, let's do more. And so, yeah, my short answer is these two retreats, both of them went so well. Not a single person dropped out. Wow. You know, out of 70 people, not a single person dropped out of either retreat. Wow. Scientists were completely flabbergasted. Because you'd think something would come up. You know, people get bored, they get unhappy, whatever. Nobody dropped out. And so just that alone is pretty, pretty amazing. But yeah. not only did they stay, but they stayed and they really derived benefit. I think 70 people out of 70 people really derive benefit from the retreat. Of course, they can leave at any time. There's nothing holding them. If they wanted to leave, they just walk out the door and they're gone. And so, yeah, for the Santa Barbara Institute, I would love within the next year or two to be able to organize even annual, on an annual basis, three-month retreats. Mm. Try to keep the costs as low as possible. And if there are scientists interested in doing research, they're welcome to come. If there are no scientists for a particular retreat, fine, we'll just do a retreat. Uh, so I think an annual three-month retreat would be great because it was so clearly a benefit and there was a lot of interest. We had to turn away more than half the people who applied for, the, uh, for these two, two retreats. Mm. But again, to do longer retreats, and this is where this is the next phase for the Santa Barbara Institute, something I'm going to be really devoting myself to this year, is trying to create what I call a contemplative observatory. Mm-hmm. We can have our own facility, again, always trying to keep the costs low so people are not turned away from retreats because they can't afford them. Mm-hmm. Develop a contemplative observatory, aka retreat center, mm-hmm. where we have, oh, maybe 30, 35 individual rooms for people to be in long-term retreat, and then have three-month retreats, one-year retreats, and uh, with or without science, really try to turn the whole issue of meditation into more professional, bring it up to a professional level. If we draw an analogy, which I did in the interview with uh, Tricycle that just came out on, on mindfulness, you know, you wouldn't entrust your teeth to a person who uh, just did a whole bunch of week-long seminars on dentistry or had been on just a three-month you know, three workshop on dentistry. And, oh, by the way, can you do my bridge work or I need some root canal work here? <laughs> And the guy says, oh, yeah, I did a three-work workshop. You know, let me at your teeth. <laughs> These are just teeth. You know? But when they're talking about the mind, I mean, if, if it has to be either my mind screwed up or my teeth, you can have my teeth. <laughs> you know? And so when talking about the mind here, this immensely powerful, fragile phenomenon that is so core to our very existence, uh, and trusting our minds to a teacher for intensive, sustained practice is a pretty big deal. And so I think teachers of meditation... And, and there are a lot of very, very, very fine ones, Eastern and Western. So I'm not saying this hasn't happened. It has happened. There are many superb teachers. But I think for a professional level of training where people are going to three-month retreats, one-year, five-year, ten-year retreats, that the teachers themselves should have that kind of professional background. And when we have people, when we have a growing number of people who have been through one, two, five, ten years of professional, rigorous, sustained training, then we're treating meditation like getting a training in neuroscience, where you can have four years of undergraduate work and then maybe six years of graduate work. Mm-hmm. There's 10 years of full-time working to study the brain. And so how about full-time five, 10 years of studying the mind mm-hmm. And the only way that we can actually observe the mind directly, and that's through, call it meditation if you like, but this is the most immediate access for understanding nature of mind, mm. studying it by way of the brain, studying by way of the behavior, excellent. But it's inferential. You never see a mental phenomenon when you study the brain. You never see a mental phenomenon when you study behavior. But you see mental phenomena when you actually sit down and start watching your mind, especially in the various rigorous ways that have been done uh, through meditation. 
So it's opening. It's, it's what I'm suggesting here is kind of a brand new branch of cognitive science mm-hmm. to complement the the psychological based upon interviews and watching behavior, and to complement the wonderful studies done in brain in brain science. Bring in what William James called for for a century ago, and that is um, first, foremost, and always introspection. But don't just watch the mind develop introspection into a really professional, rigorous. Um, method or matrix of methods for observing the mind, just like astronomers have extremely rigorous methods for observing celestial phenomena. Mm-hmm. They don't just study the brains of scientists looking through the telescope. The brains of <laughs> you know the, the brains of lay people. Better yet, they don't study the brains of lay people looking into the sky. Right. Uh, you know. <laughs> so we've kind of the mind scientists thus far have left introspection completely at the level of folk psychology, completely in the hands of amateurs. And this is where Buddhism and the other great contemplative traditions of the world can say, hey, you know, we don't have to leave it all, all the amateurs any more than we need to leave astronomy to stargazers. Let's develop the, the telescope. Let's develop shamatha. Let's develop the science. Let's develop vipassana. And let's take this on professionally. And that's what Buddhism has been doing for 2,500 years. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.